Welcome to the Wild and Free podcast, episode three. I'm Ainsley Arment. I'm here with Tina Ingold, and today we're talking more about being playful. In just a little bit, we're going to hear a conversation with Jennifer Pepito and Rhea Berg, the founder of Beautiful Feet Books. So grab a cup of coffee and join us on the front porch. Let's get started. no one better to talk to you about being playful than you because oh. you are like one of the most playful <laughs> yeah mamas I know I really do you think that's do just not, inborn in you or do you try is. really hard to no be I really do not take life very seriously I really don't I can't and maybe that's to a fault because <laughs> my husband tried to sit down with me and have a serious conversation about dealing with our business and he said at one point <laughs> kind of teasing me but he said you know that we can't just dance through life right <laughs> Because that's kind of my, I just kind of dance everything off. I'm like, oh, it'll be, everything will be fine, you know. But it really is ingrained in me to not take life too seriously and just to have fun. And I just think really this life is too short to just, I don't know, be serious all the time. And so um, we're very, very spontaneous. We don't plan things. I don't write anything down. I can't function that way. And so I try to give my kids the most fun and silly and playful childhood that they can have. I really want them to have a lot of fun experiences. I feel like it's important for me that when they grow up, they look back at their childhood and just have all really great memories. And I think that comes with, you know, working as a team, you know, husband and wife, or, or if you're a single mom, you know, just having a support system around you that is constantly affirming your children, you know, building them up, loving them well, and just having fun in life, dancing and singing and just goofing off. I just think that's such an important part of life. Looking at your Instagram account or even your Instagram <laughs> stories, you are always <laughs> dancing. You are always <laughs> singing or grooving the music. And your yeah. kids are too. And I was like, you know, I couldn't make my kids dance or groove to music. And I thought, you know, that must be because I don't do that. I mean, and I feel like I do sometimes. It, they'll always be like, why were you just mean and now you're so fun? And I'm like, well, I can be fun. I used to be really fun before I had five children. Yes, no, I, I know what you mean. But, and I do have to be intentional about it. So, you know, sometimes I am in a grumpy mood or sometimes I'm just not feeling it. But I think kids have a way of bringing that out of you because they are hardly ever in a bad mood, you know, seeing them and their innocence and their playful it brings that out of me like every time while we're making dinner we always crank the music some kind of dancing music so that while we're making dinner together we're you know dancing and laughing and talking about the music we talk about music a lot like hey what instruments are they using or oh do you hear the harmonies or you know so I think being musical anyway helps with that you know with the dancing and singing mm. and um, yeah and not everyone's gonna be as musical exactly as you are necessarily but there are ways that we can really be intentional about about being more playful. I mean, I think that it's great to like play with our children. I think that's one thing that we can do is not just having our children play, but actually taking time to play with them. I know with my four-year-old daughter, I don't do that nearly as often as I did that with my first and my second mm -hmm. child. And when I do that, I can see it in her face. Mm -hmm. Mommy, do you want to play with me? 
And I'm like, I am playing with you. But she has to ask because she's so, like, happy that I'm sitting there playing with her. But she yeah. keeps saying, do you want to play with me? I think she, I didn't used to understand. I'm like, am I not playing the right way? But I think it's just she was happy I was there and she didn't want me to go. Like, by yes. asking me over and over again, maybe she was yeah. making sure that I would stay there and keep playing with her. And one time last summer, I was watching the kids swim in the pool. And I'm always, like, lifeguard duty, you know? Mm-hmm. Got, yeah. I've got some that can swim, some that can't swim, some that think right. they can swim. And oh, I'm so stressed out watching them. That I rarely yeah. swim. And I just remember one time, it's like, I'm just going to jump in the pool and swim. And the, and the kids just went crazy. Mom's swimming. Look, everybody, mom's swimming. <laughs> and I was thinking, this is not weird. I swim, mom swims. You know, and then I thought, well, <laughs> they all come swimming towards me. Mom, you want to swim with me? And I'm like, I'm swimming. I'm swimming with you right now. But they just got so excited. And kids just love it. They love to see their parents play and to have fun. Life is serious. You're you're worrying about their children's safety. You're worrying about whether or not they run in the street or drown in the pool. And there's so many families that have struggles, like a seriously ill child or financial issues or divorce, broken relationships. And it's like, you know, I wanted to inspire us, like just as moms even, to be playful too. You know, to keep the playful spirit alive in us because it means so much to our kids. But plus, it's good for our souls too. reading an article a while ago about the importance of proximity to your kids and it was specifically referring to fighting you know if your kids are fighting if you're dealing with kids who struggle with each other and have arguments and little bickerings and stuff and it was saying that the closer you are to your kids I mean proximity wise the the better they get along and I'm not saying then you have to be like inches away from your kids constantly but you know if your kids are playing a game together sit with them you don't even necessarily have to play the game with them but just sit down with them for a few minutes and just that proximity them seeing you right there with them it causes them to have a natural reaction to just love each other and to get along and I thought Mm. that was so interesting and I actually I started trying it more like because a lot of times they do like to play in their own or like build Legos or whatever but I would just go in there and sit with them and just watch them build Legos for a few minutes and I could tell just that closeness gave them so much comfort and there was like a peace in the room and it was it was really precious. I don't wow, know. I, I yeah. just thought that was You know, you saying that, I can see that too. Like there are times that I've done that. There is like you just sit in the room with them and there's just yeah. so much. I read once too. I'm horrible because I'm like, I read once, but I never I remember know. where it I was or <laughs> who said it. But just that children not only want you to play with them, but they want you to watch them play. And somebody even said to tell your child, I love watching you play because it validates that first of all you enjoy watching them play and do something that they just really enjoy doing themselves and I actually tried it with Annie she's four but I said it to her because she it was like the least awkward person to say it to you know like my boys would have been like okay mom so I said it to her when it was really genuine you know I was sitting in there and I was watching her play with her calico critters and I said oh Annie I just love watching you play and she just smiled like beamed ear to ear and just kept playing and but you could tell that I just paid her the 
the highest compliment ever. Yeah, I and think we forget to really validate our kids in the simple things, you know. And I think sometimes I think that loving my kids looks like making sure the living room's vacuumed. Right. But that's kind of more me loving myself. I want my living room clean. And my kids could not care less if my living room's clean. So instead of vacuuming, take that five minutes to just sit with them or talk with them. And, you know, you can vacuum later when, I don't know, when everybody's asleep. No, whenever. I don't really know. But, it is you so know, hard to do sometimes because you're like, I've let everything go while homeschooling. Yes. I've let everything go to meal prep or whatever. And then you're like, ah, five minutes is nothing no. to just sit with your kids and let exactly. it go. There mm-hmm. are some days that, that I'm like, did I even like look my youngest in the face today? It's so <laughs> you know? true. Yes. Talking about playful, I'm like, I am going to, first of all, be more aware of my face. Like I want to yes. smile more. <laughs> That's so weird. I want to be more aware of my face. <laughs> no, I want to smile more. Like when nothing's happening, you yeah. know, not that I'm upset or, you know, angry. It's not that I have nothing to smile about. It's just that to smile even when there's nothing to smile about, just so that I look happy and playful <laughs> for my kids. Yes, yes. And then to also just be really aware of when I have my phone in front of my face. Yes. When I'm with the kids. When I sit down with the kids, like I don't have my phone. My husband's always like, you never have your phone on you. I can never reach you. It's like, (laughs) I try. I try to like put it down, but then I forget where I put it. It's like in the closet under the pile of clothes I just put away. Yeah. I'm like, in the washing machine. (laughs) I know. I have to email them like from the computer. Can you call my phone? Because it's missing. Like always in the weirdest, like I just put it in the diaper pail or something. I still notice because my kids don't say it. Well, how come you get to be on your phone and we don't get to have electronics or, you know, so I know it's a thing. So it's just being more aware of that and then taking like 15 minutes a day, even 15 minutes a day to play with my kids or to sit while they play. Your family is really great about playing together. And I feel like we're, we don't have anything that we like play together as family, but we like to get out together and do things. Jody Mockabee actually wrote a piece for the bundle playful about the playful family, just spending time together and finding activities that they can all do together. Like for them, they love to ski in the wintertime and they love to go hiking and chasing waterfalls in the summer, but just being inspired to figure out how to be a more playful family together and you guys do that really well well first of all you guys all longboard right we all longboard yeah as soon as they turn four they get their own board so my youngest is the last one he hasn't gotten one yet but his birthday's in May and he'll be four so he's really excited and then yeah and then we all board together so sometimes I do think it is a little bit of an advantage living in the city too you know we live in a city so we go on a lot of adventure days where we visit local bakeries and local stores and things and that's kind of been built into like field trip days this last time we went to a local bakery and actually we just went there to eat macaroons the head chef said come on back and I'll teach you how to make macaroons so we all got to go in the into the kitchen are you kidding me oh it was amazing and he showed the kids how to make macaroons and then pretty soon they're you know doing all the steps and it was just a really really great experience and so I love getting to do just you know random things like that that aren't planned even and just be able to go and play in that way too you know Speaking of having fun as a family, so we have the Colorado Family Camp this summer in August. August, yes. It's so fun. This is our second year doing it for Wild and Free, but it's the third time that our family will do it. And our kids talk about it the entire year. Leading up to it, it's a weekend. It's at Trail West Lodge in Colorado. And it is so much fun. But one of the main reasons that we wanted to do it was just to give families a time to like play together. 
And the parents that come and they talk and they share like the last day what the weekend has meant to them. But without a doubt, all the parents, they all say it was just so neat to do something with my child, learn something together, the ropes course or do the rodeo. And just the kids think it is the most amazing thing to see their parents just cutting loose and having the best time. Because even vacations can be stressful sometimes. You're planning activities and you're going and kids sometimes are grumpy. But family camp, everyone's happy 99.9% of the time. Yeah. It's so much fun but that's coming up in august so if you want more information about that just go to our website bewildandfree.org and sign up for family camp we would love to have you Now we're going to join a conversation with Jennifer Pepito and Rhea Berg. Rhea is the founder of Beautiful Feet Books and has a passion for literature and learning through story. I first met Rhea last spring at the Wild and Free Conference in Long Beach, California, and I fell in love with her genuine spirit, her kindness, her integrity, and the way she carried herself with such dignity and grace. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. I know you're going to love her too. Talking to a true homeschool pioneer. Rhea Berg has been homeschooling for quite a few years. She is the founder of the Beautiful Feet Books Company, which has also been around for quite a few years. I used a Beautiful Feet Books curriculum like 15 years ago with my oldest daughter. So Rhea, could you just give us kind of an overview of who your family is and how long you have been homeschooling? Okay, well, we are three decades into homeschooling, which I guess I never really thought I'd say that, but I'm saying it, it's true. And we've done pretty much every iteration you can imagine of education, from homeschool to charter schools to sometimes public school for brief periods. But the heart of our um, educational thrust has always been home education. So we've educated and graduated for adult children who have all graduated from college and are working professionally in their fields. Our oldest daughter just graduated in June with her master's degree degree in the great books curriculum. And that is just a really affirming to me that the power of literature, it keeps on giving. And all of our children are readers. Our second oldest daughter is the mother of three boys. And then we have a son in San Francisco who's an architect. And our youngest son also graduated in history from Cal Poly. And he works uh, full-time with Beautiful Feet Books now. And then we have a 21-year-old and a 16-year-old. And that's your last two. So you're still homeschooling part-time the 16-year-old? Yes, exactly. Okay, that's amazing. So you've been homeschooling for over 30 years. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk to you about history today, but I'd love to just hear kind of an overview of some of the good and bad things that you've seen in the homeschool movement being involved for that long. Yeah, I guess we've seen we've seen about all there is to see, I think. Although I'm sure the next 10 years we'll see a whole nother, you know, a, a whole nother iteration of whatever homeschooling is. But I feel very encouraged right now about home education, especially because of the wild and free movement, because I see really passionate moms, loving their children, loving their families, loving good books and nature studies. And I think if Charlotte Mason could see what was happening through the Wild and Free Movement, I think she would be so 
delighted and thrilled and gratified that her work 150 years later is having such an impact and still really inspiring people. So that makes me really happy. I think we've seen kind of the good, bad, and the ugly of homeschooling. We were talking to some friends just yesterday, and they were mentioning that they had friends who'd homeschooled, but their homeschooling paradigm seemed to be driven by fear that they were more interested in protecting their children from anything outside in the world or any evil influences or, you know, bad influences. That was their primary motivator. And I said, that's really sad because if our primary motivation in our paradigm is fear, then we lose the beauty of what homeschooling can offer us. And to me, it's the freedom of exploration, the adventure of learning, and the freedom to devote yourself to the best books. Because, you know, none of us will ever have time in this life to read all the best books. And to think that you have these years with your children where you can be giving them a constant flow of really, in so many ways, transformative literature. It informs their minds and their hearts and gives them a knowledge of the world and a knowledge of human nature and a knowledge of their own nature. We've seen homeschooling families come and go where they're driven by fear and not by a passion and a love for learning. I love how you brought up the wild and free movement. It's almost like the slow food movement. Like, yes, it's exactly. almost like, because there's a lot of different, like you said, even iterations of wild and free mamas as far as the way we do life with our kids but but one common denominator is that we are very intentional about preserving childhood and about not over scheduling our kids and about giving our kids just a really broad a big world you know giving them great Mm -hmm. books and time in nature and not just rushing them from one activity to the next yeah and I don't know you probably remember when the book came out Michael Medved wrote a book called The End of Childhood I you know what I've never even heard of that book. You know, it was talking about how modern society has pushed our children in such a direction that they've lost their childhood. They're so overscheduled. They're so driven academically because our society believes that the way to happiness is to get a good college education, get a six-figure paying job, fulfill the American dream, buy a home, and you'll be happy. In the pursuit of those very materialistic goals, you know, we've lost sight of just the wonder and the beauty of what childhood is supposed to be. That's why children are so overscheduled. I mean, there a study just came out that the average child has around seven minutes of their average day that's unscheduled. Wow, that's really tragic. I'm reading The Danish Way of Parenting right now, Mm. and they're talking just even about how play is so important for our kids in a myriad of different ways that involve learning. I did a blog post on that recently based on the book How to Raise a Wild Child, which I thought was so appropriate with the whole wild and free movement. He talks a lot in there about play and brain development. There is no question any mother who has children knows that children have an insatiable drive to play and that even as homeschoolers, the moment we turn our back or get distracted or the phone rings or whatever, the kids will be immediately at play. You know, it's just it's in their DNA. And that's a beautiful thing. And that's such an important thing for mental, emotional, physical, spiritual health, everything. 
and I mean, play is important for adults too, but we don't cherish it or make time for it like we do maybe for our children. You know, I'd love to talk a little bit about transformative literature or living books, because I really feel like a lot of the best play that my children engage in comes from stories they've read. Yes. And so, you know, we really try to keep a library on hand and purchase books or check out books that encourage that play. So how would you define living books or transformative literature? Ruth Sawyer has a definition of it. You know, she was award-winning children's author, but it's, you know, books that create wonder, books that are full of adventure, books that are full of mercy and goodness and truth and they have transcendent value. And I think that's what defines the best children's books. They take us outside of ourselves. They help us to see something bigger than ourselves. Now, we did a charter school for a year with an older child, a high school student. You know, at first we were just taking the curriculum that they gave us, Mm -hmm. whatever the public school uses. But I noticed that a lot of the reading that they assigned was pretty depressing like they did a Jonathan Swift book but it was oh I can't even remember the name of it but it was definitely not transformative in no way redemptive just really pretty Mm. much a try it was a satire but it was very tragic and I noticed some of the assigned reading that have come from the regular schools often seems like the end result or the stories don't end so happily as you know especially as kids are getting older and not that we have to have always a happy ending but as our kids are forming their worldview and they're forming their taste for life in a way yes i noticed that with beautiful feet books basically you aren't doing little chunks of books you're assigning whole books Yes. I mean, I think it's a very rare instance where you shouldn't read the whole book. I mean, sometimes we have to do that just in terms of brevity and being able to get through a lot of material. But but most of our assigned reading is we do. We read the entire book. I mean, you can certainly read excerpts of poetry and that sort of thing. But I think to really get what the author's intention was, you have to read a book from the beginning to the end. The very best books will speak to universal truths of the human heart. If our children fall in love with literature as young children, and I'm talking from the time we first start reading to them where they really understand a book. You know, I have a two-year-old grandson and it's phenomenal, the books that I can read to him. You know, I can read the original Beatrix Potter books to him and he totally gets it. And he's getting that beautiful exposure to language. And when the birds are speaking to Peter Rabbit and they're saying, Peter, Peter, we implore you to exist yourself you know he gets it he gets it it's so beautiful because that's what the best literature does and even though at two he may maybe isn't comprehending the entire thing his vocabulary is being built he's following the plot he's absorbing the language and his mind and his heart are being fed at the same time i think it's interesting what you brought up about the typical high school reading list because in your average public schools you're absolutely right they will read an entire series of books that are so depressing. You know, you think of Catcher in the Rye and you think of The Lord of the Flies and The Outsiders and The Chocolate Wars. And they're these coming of age novels, but they don't offer hope. You know, they basically show man in his most depraved state and there's nothing redemptive about them. And I've always found it really ironic that that's what they feed teenagers 
when, you know, that's the very season in their life they are absolutely the most idealistic they'll ever be. Teenagers are just idealistic by nature or by hormones or something. I don't know what it is. And so that's the age where we should be giving them beautiful literature that really gives them hope. Hope about the difference one person can make in the world and the importance of community and the importance of our role in this amazing story that, you know, is taking place. I'm not saying that students should never read The Catcher in the Rye or The Lord of the Flies, but it certainly should be balanced by books that explore and give more um, hope and a more redemptive message. I think it's really important to have that back. We don't always have to read happy ending stories. Not every story has a happy ending. You know, we really think about what we read. Like, even for myself as an adult, if I read a novel that is just absolutely has no happy ending, there's nothing hopeful about it, I think about that a lot. And it it changes the way I look at life. And I really, it takes me a minute to, like, shake it off. You know what I mean? And so for our kids to just be in a time when they when they need to be inspired to be feeding them only dark and brooding literature yes seems seems wrong really it almost borders a little bit on child abuse because it's like we're the gatekeepers and we're supposed to be informing them educating them inspiring them challenging them and when they only see the dark side of life which is certainly true it's certainly there it's reality it's just not fair because there is also this other side of life that's beautiful and hopeful and redemptive you know there are amazing people doing wonderful things things on this earth and they need to know those stories too and I loved also what you said about your grandson that was one question I had is when do we start teaching history like how early should we start Ralph Waldo Emerson I love his quote because he said there is properly no history only biography so the minute we start reading our little ones biography we're we're reading them history but of course they're not thinking they're sitting down and doing historical studies but you know history is really the stories of people if we're reading our children's stories they're getting exposed to what history is i mean there's so many incredible picture books that you can use with little ones that are exposing them to history even though you don't think of it in that light i love to what david mccullough you know the pulitzer prize winning author of john adams and 1776 you know he says what do we need to do to make history come alive and he quotes Barbara Tushman, who's also a Pulitzer Prize winning historian, and her basic answer was tell stories. If we want to make history come alive, tell stories. And uh, she quotes from E.M. Forster, who wrote Howard's End, Room with a View, all of those. He has this beautiful definition of history, and he says, if I say to you, the king died, and then the queen died, that's a sequence of events. You know, that's history, but it's just a sequence of events. But if I say to you, the king died, and then the queen died of a broken heart, that's a story, that's human, that calls for empathy and compassion on the part of the listener. And that's the difference between history and story. My boys right now, they watched Braveheart with their dad. Mm-hmm. And at the same time to the younger children, I'm reading The Door in the Wall. So it's- very interesting because my older boys are catching on to the fact that, you know, Robert the Bruce and William Wallace, who they'd also read about in books by G.A. Henty, are the one side of this battle and the people in the door on the wall are the other side of the battle. Yes. And, and it's just so fascinating when you bring a story into they they remember so much more. Most of my life as a homeschooler, we've focused on stories 
and then we usually do projects and adding on to that some map work and occasionally some memory work. Memory work has never been a big part of our homeschool. What's your take on memory work? Because I know it has a place. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things that I believe in passionately. I wasn't super successful at a lot of memory work, but I do want to speak to it because I think it's a really important subject right now because I think there's a big emphasis on memorization. What bothers me about the big emphasis on memorization right now is the content of what folks are having their children memorize. Because I think about, you know, memorizing facts and dates and times and places and the names of kings and queens and historical events it really is knowledge for knowledge's sake. And, you know, we know that we're really warned against knowledge for knowledge's sake. But knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And so I think the reason that it tends to be such a popular paradigm in this generation is because it makes the parents feel good. And that is is a pretty vacuous reason for making our children do something. Because when we are making our children do something because it makes us feel like we're a accomplishing something and that we're being good teachers because our children know all these facts, that is a sad place to go because that's not what true education is. True education isn't filling the mind. It's informing the heart and training the heart and the spirit. And and so I think that we really have to focus on really what our goals are for education. If our, our goals are primarily academic, then fine, you know, memorize all you want, but memorize things that will be transformative for your children. If you're spending all that time working on memorizing dates and facts and times, and you could be memorizing Shakespeare, or you could be memorizing Tennyson, or you could be memorizing some of the poems of T.S. Eliot, you are equipping and giving your child keys to unlock their future, keys to unlock what may happen to them when tragedy strikes and when they have to walk through grief or they're faced with compromising their integrity. And nothing that they've memorized in terms of facts and dates and times and places will inform them in that way. But if they memorize beautiful passages from Shakespeare about mercy, you know, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth of his dental dew from heaven. It is twice blessed. It blesses both the giver and the receiver. You know, those things will inform life decisions. And that's what we want to be equipping our children with. Right. I think a lot of times homeschoolers were just so scared that we're going to not check all the bases. We're not going to hit all the things that need to be taught. And so I think for homeschoolers, they're they're using that form of education, not so much that they want to feel good, but just that they're like, I'm scared I'm going to miss something. And here's a form of education that will make sure that my kids, you know, know all the important stuff. And so let's do it. It's a lot of time and energy that could be so much more productively spent. And if our children are raised in stories and a life rich with stories, they will never forget those. They will take those into their life. There's a great story that uh, Ruth Sawyer talks about in her book, The Way of a Storyteller. It's a true story of three servicemen whose plane goes down over the Pacific during World War III. The pilot had some education, but his two crew members who survived the crash, they had very minimal education and they knew no stories. None of the men in this boat knew stories with the exception of the captain who remembered a few of his stories that he had been taught when he was in Sunday school as a child. And they were stranded. They were out in the open ocean, you know, in a life raft, 
for something like 35 days and they were so desperate for something to pass the time that the other two crew members who knew no stories, all they could talk about was food, you know, because they're starving to death. And so they would just have the captain tell them these Bible stories that he remembered from Sunday school over and over and over again. And to me, you know, it's just, it's such a poignant metaphor for what are we really equipping our children with? And we were laughing about, well, you know, if one of the crew had just memorized a lot of facts, what would you have done if he starts, you know, spewing out the facts to pass the time? It's just like, my girlfriend said, I would have just jumped out of the boat. It's not life-giving, you know. And it's so good because even as moms, like for me, reading Little House on the Prairie encourages me in those hardest days with my kids or the hardest days financially, whatever it is, to keep on keeping a calm spirit or reading a book like um, The Endurance about Shackleton makes me feel like whatever I'm going through is not as bad as that and they survived. So I love how you brought that in because even though most of us are not going to be stranded in a ship, the stories that we know and the things that we memorize are that food to help us get through darker days and believe that there's something better on the other side. Thanks so much for joining us today, Rhea. We loved having you. Before we go, I wanted to tell you that while our national conference in Nashville this fall is sold out, we produce monthly content bundles that are like a conference in your home every single month. They're packed full of encouragement and inspiration, but also some practical applications like book club tutorials, handcraft tutorials, nature journaling guides, articles, and lots of other things to help you in your everyday homeschooling. Check out our bundles and find out how you can get a free one at bewildandfree.org bundles. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone, and we'll see you next time on the Wild and Free Podcast. Mm-hmm.